All right, good evening, guys. It's good to see everybody tonight. If you would, um, open your Bibles to James chapter 2. Now, once again, let me just say this. When we uh, started this study, we said that James is really wanting to encourage his readers, and primarily he's writing to Jewish Christians, but really because they're Christian, he's writing to all Christians, really. And he wanted to encourage all of us, if we're going to include ourselves, to go on to maturity and have a deep commitment to the Lord. Now, James is challenging his readers to go on to maturity because many of them were languishing in carnality. That's a real problem. I guess there is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. We have a lot of people today who love the Lord you know, and are saved, but they're not going forward. As Paul said in Hebrews 5, by this time they ought to be teachers of the word, but they're still having to be taught the most basic principles of their faith. That's, that's a tragedy. Um, you know, when a baby's first born and all, and it's cute, and it's wonderful, and you don't expect the baby to do much, just kind of lay there and talk a little bit, not talk, but, you know, make little noises and and, uh, you know, and, and act cute. If the person was, uh, you know, 15 or 20 years old in a crib still acting like that, that would be a, a tragedy. It wouldn't be cute anymore. There's a lot of Christians who need to grow up. Uh, it's becoming a tragedy to see them, you know, year after year just being stunted in their growth. So he wants to encourage his readers to go on to maturity. Uh, that's why, once again, the first issue he tackles is encouraging us to accept trials with joy because he knows trials will build within us our faith and the character of Christ. And really, it's all about becoming more and more like Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Spirit of God is wanting to transform us uh, day by day into the image of Jesus. Romans uh, 8.29, we are, God wants us to become, you know, the image of Christ. So, it's all about Jesus. It's all about be, being a light in the world, uh, you know, by, through the character of Christ in our lives. Uh, of course, he knows the devil is going to want to oppose that every chance he gets. And so the devil will bring temptation. God brings trials to grow us. The devil brings temptation uh, to stumble us. And uh, it's just important that we understand that because the devil wants to rob us of everything God wants to do in us. So, you know, all the Christ-like character, if you can get us away from the Lord into sin, of course, that all goes away. He extinguishes our light and so on. So you understand it. We've talked about that. Now, starting in verse 21 of chapter 1, James seems to shift his focus from carnal Christians to counterfeit Christians. Let's read verse 21 and 22 again. He says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So it seems that James is trying to get his readers to understand that a person can be religious, can go to church and believe all the right things and still not be saved. Still not be saved. Maybe this is the very reason why so many were not mature and walking closely with Jesus in their faith. It was because they really didn't have saving faith. And maybe that's what's going through James's mind. Maybe that's why he now shifts 
from talking to carnal Christians who are really Christians. But maybe he's beginning to say, well, you know what, maybe the problem is, though, it's not that, you know, you're not wanting to mature as Christians, that you're not even Christians, okay? And uh, what they had, and remember, he's talking to Jewish people. Uh, what they had, many of them, was probably religion. Of course, if you would have asked them, they would have said, no, I've got a relationship with Jesus based on the law. Because there were many who professed faith in Christ back then, but were still clinging on to the law. And they were basing their relationship with the Lord on their religious works still. They're keeping the law and so on. Uh, but they didn't really have a true relationship with Jesus, as we would call it, uh, because they weren't really born of the Spirit. It, was, it wasn't a true relationship based on God's grace. It was, uh, it was a pseudo-relationship with Jesus based on the law. So James begins to kind of camp now on this idea, as he now tries to teach his readers that religion gives the appearance of knowing God, but it is only an illusion rooted in deception, verse 22 is what he's probably trying to get at. He wants to remind his Jewish readers that Jesus came to abolish the law. Now, the, Paul, who I believe wrote Hebrews, spends almost the entire book on that subject. How that, you know what? <laughs> the old covenant was glorious. Get over it. It's done. And it was nothing compared with the glory of the new covenant. And so on. You can study the book of Hebrews. We went through that a couple years ago. But he wants to remind his Jewish readers that Jesus came to abolish the law of Moses and replace it with another law, quote-unquote. Verse 25, he calls it the perfect law of liberty. The perfect law of liberty is simply James' way of referring to the new covenant, which a person enters into through faith in Jesus, of course, and which sets them free. In other words, gives them liberty from the law of Moses, which, listen, couldn't give them freedom from the power of sin. This was the problem. This is the deception with religion. It, it looks good. And, you know, and, and from an outward perspective, wow, it seems like a person really knows God. But religion has no power to free you from the hold that sin has on your life. We're all in bondage to sin. That's happened in the Garden of Eden, all right? And at that point, Adam sold all of us into slavery to Satan and to the flesh because that's when our fallen nature came into existence. The only one that can set us free is Jesus Christ. Religion can't do it. Not even a religion that God gave like Judaism. In fact, we all know he didn't give Judaism to set them free or to make them holy or to save them. It was simply to show them they couldn't keep these laws and to drive them to their knees, to bring them to Christ for the new covenant when the time came. Uh, but, you know... The perfect law of liberty is basically, uh, through the new covenant, God giving us liberty, giving them liberty over the old covenant under Moses. And this sets us free. This gives us true liberty, right? Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verse 20. I'll read it to you out of the NLT, but you can follow along in your version. Paul says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made, made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. Jew or Gentile is the idea. Can, verse 27, can we boast then 
that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law of Moses. It is based on, listen, the law of faith and the way James puts it, the perfect law of liberty. Same idea. Look, we all know that nobody did religion, quote-unquote, like the Jews did. We all know that, all right? I mean, they had a religious system, one that God gave them, that was the epitome of religion. But all that Judaism did, if they didn't allow it to do what God designed it to do, bring them to the end of themselves to receive another way, we know as Messiah, he is the way. If they embraced Judaism and looked at it as a way to actually be righteous, as the Pharisees did, all it did was turn them into whitewashed tombs. And we all know what that is. Of course, around the feast days, they would whitewash the tombs because travelers coming from different parts of the known world wouldn't know where the tombs were around Jerusalem. And if they would walk over one, they would be defiled and couldn't keep the Passover or uh, Pentecost or whatever feast they were in town for. And so as a courtesy to these pilgrims, the villagers would, uh, around the Jerusalem and all, would whitewash the tombs. And that way, a traveler would see it, they would all know what that meant, and they would go around it. Of course, you can whitewash a tomb. And on the outside, it looks pure and white and clean. But we all know inside, it's full of defilement and corruption and so on. And Jesus picked up on that and said the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look all holy and righteous, but inside they were full of iniquity and hypocrisy and all kinds of evil things because religion, guys, no matter how intense it is, will never touch the heart. It will only surface cleanse a person's life. It can't do anything but do that. It just gives you an outward look that you're holy, but it can't touch the heart. It leaves the heart unchanged. But when a person is born again, of course, they receive a new heart, a heart given to them by God. And as such, God pours his agape love into that new heart through his indwelling Holy Spirit. Romans 5 verse 5 tells us we cannot manufacture God's love. Agape love is not human love. It's not natural love. We have no way to fake it or make it. We have to have it given to us by God, which he does the moment we uh, receive Christ and he gives us a new heart and pours his agape love into us. And now we have the capacity to love people with God's love. Not that we always do it, of course, but it's there. Whereas unbelievers, it's not there, okay? And here's the thing. When God's love is planted in a person's heart through the new birth, what will inevitably start to grow out of that heart, listen now, this gets into what we're talking about. What will inevitably, inevitably start to grow out of that heart are acts of kindness towards those God especially has a soft spot in his heart for orphans, widows, strangers, and the poor. Without these acts of kindness and concern for the lowliest and most vulnerable and disadvantaged in society, guess what? No one has the right to say they really know God. You cannot have God's heart and be callous towards human suffering. That's why it's the church of Jesus Christ whenever there's a natural disaster in one part of the world, or a tsunami, or a hurricane. It is the Christians who either mobilize physically to go there to help, or immediately begin to send money. Why? Because God, and many will testify, before I got saved, I didn't care about anybody but me. 
All of a sudden, I got all this compassion in my heart. That's because you're a Christian. And you have God's heart, and you can't have God's heart and not feel what God feels about people. This is the whole idea, right? This is what James is keying in on. He's basically almost challenging these folks that, you know, probably were not Christians, many of them, although they thought they were. Look, you know, you say you have religion. You say you're saved. But where is your heart for people, right? Didn't he end uh, chapter 1 with this very thought? He said in verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the, and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble or in their distress, in their time of need, and to keep oneself unpolluted from the defilement of the world. And as we said last week, guys, James has taken a very practical approach uh, when it comes to verifying if a person who says they're a Christian really is a Christian. If their so-called faith, which he calls religion, doesn't manifest itself again, in acts of kindness towards those who are poor, disadvantaged, and so on, uh, and doesn't also manifest itself in a redeemed tongue and a heart that desires to stay away from the pollution of the world? How can you call yourself a Christian and you're out there in the world polluting yourself, defiling yourself? Sure, you can be a backslidden Christian. It's possible. But, but there are people who think they're Christians and week after week they're out in the world and they're out in the world, I should say, and they're partaking of the defilement of the world james is saying look if that's where you're coming from you better examine your relationship with god it doesn't seem like you have one that kind of religion he says is meaningless in the eyes of god those that kind of so-called religion is meaningless in the eyes of god which simply means that that person's so-called faith isn't genuine they have religion but not a true relationship with the lord now James continues this thought into chapter 2, which he starts off by telling us that true Christians can and do sometimes act, surprise, surprise, in an unchristian and even worldly way towards the poor. He says, look, I'm not saying that true Christians never act badly to the poor. I'm just saying it's a, it's a trait of religious unbelievers. Now, we Christians who really are saved... We don't always act the way we should to those who are distant. We can fall into the trap of respecting some and not others. And that's what he wants to get into now. You know, some Christians who are genuinely Christians, they can, they can be carnal and become respecters of persons, showing, you know, favoritism to the rich while not loving or respecting as they should the poor who God loves and so on. So verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality, or in other words, with favoritism towards some. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, go stand over there in the back, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality or favoritism among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I wonder how many times this scene or something similar has been played out in Christian churches across the centuries and throughout the world. But this is absolutely abhorrent to God. 
And this is what James is basically saying. It's abhorrent to God because he is no respecter of persons. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 says, and I quote, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, listen, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. In Matthew 22, verse 16, some of Jesus' enemies, it says, sent some of their disciples, along with the supporters of Herod, to meet with him, Jesus. Uh, Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. Now, they were picking up on something that Jesus had manifested all throughout his earthly ministry. This was, in fact, a hallmark of his ministry, how he sought out and spent time with the poor and others who were social outcasts, tax collectors, prostitutes, various sinners of all different kinds, for which the religious establishment condemned him constantly. The Pharisees had nothing to do with people like this. They felt that they were so defiled, they didn't even want to come in contact with them. The Pharisees were the ones who would walk down uh, the streets with their robes pulled tight to their bodies, lest the wind should gust and uh, take the flap of their robe and it would brush up against some sinner and defile them. This is where they were coming from. No contact with the defiled, which in their minds was pretty much everybody except other Pharisees. But Jesus was breaking barriers. He was, he was, he was ministering to women. He had women who followed him and ministered to him and his disciples. Uh, he was constantly spending time with tax collectors and with prostitutes. They loved him because he didn't judge them. He reached out to them, and they loved him. And, and the Pharisees and scribes, man, they kept putting him down. What kind of a prophet is this, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? Well, he's the kind of prophet uh, who was the Lord of glory who came down to seek and to save those who were lost. But I I know that uh, this kind of thing happens all the time. In fact, the Calvary Chapel movement, in many ways, came out of a situation like this. You know, back in the mid to late 60s, when God began to really move among the hippies, And, of course, you know, he began to move in their hearts, and they wanted to know God. And so many of them started to show up at churches around the Southern California area, wearing the tie-dyed T-shirts and the bell-bottom jeans and the sandals and wearing the long hair. And I have been told by more than a few people who were back at that time, back then, who were the hippies, all right, who are now pastors, um, we showed up at some of these churches and they met us, the deacons met us at the door and says, look, go home, cut your hair, change your clothes, then you can come back. Well, you know, they weren't going to do that. They didn't understand why they had to do that. And here was one church that the word got out. There was one church that, where they were welcome just as they were. You got to come to Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, Pastor Chuck Smith. I mean, he, he welcomes us into his church. He loves us. Uh, it doesn't judge us for the way we look. And that became the beginning of the Jesus movement and God using a man to lead a movement that became legendary uh, of God's power and glory. But when God wants to do a work, he wants to do a work among all different kinds of people. Are we ready 
if God begins to do a work in our society and we start having a lot of people showing up with purple hair and orange hair and, and tattoos all over their bodies and different, are we ready for that? Or homeless people walking in here don't smell real nice. I mean, are we ready? We, we, we say, Lord, you know, we want to reach the lost. Uh, yeah, I'd like to know how many, even in our church, would stand for somebody who is homeless sitting right next to them on a Sunday morning. These are the kinds of things we have to prepare ourselves for now. Search our own hearts. That doesn't mean you're unsaved. It just means we're maybe comfortable. We, we tend to gravitate towards people who are like us. And it's easy to love those who are like us. It's a lot harder to love those who are a lot different than we are. But God is no respecter of persons. And uh, let's not forget the words of God which he spoke to Samuel the prophet. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now, guys, by saying this, James isn't saying that there are no rich people who really love God. He's not saying that. Only that those who are poor will dominate the kingdom of God. Why? Well, because as Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man or woman to enter the kingdom of God. Why? You have to understand the Jewish mindset and what they were taught by the rabbis. They were taught that if you gave alms, gifts of money to the poor, you would earn little pieces of heaven in a sense, right? And the more alms you gave, you could eventually buy your way into heaven. Now, of course, the wealthy had enough money to give all kinds of gifts to the poor. So the rabbis basically taught that, you know, rich people were a shoe-in. If a rich person gave all kinds of alms to the poor, well, they could pretty much be assured of buying their way to heaven. So they were trusting in their wealth to get them there. And uh, Jesus said that is absolutely uh, untrue. You cannot buy your way into heaven. You don't get there by giving gifts to people. You get there by receiving God's gift to you by faith, which is in his son, of course. But uh, they had this idea that they could basically buy heaven. And uh, the poor knew they couldn't buy anything. So the poor would just come to God destitute. And, uh, of course, if you're a poor person, uh, you, you'd have to depend on God to provide your daily needs. And what that would do is it would build your faith. Or as James puts it, uh, they would become rich in faith. The poor could not supply even their daily bread. They would have Poor Christians had to depend on God. Okay? I mean... They had to depend on God to give them everything they needed to live, which he did. And of course, as he did, it built their faith. They became rich in faith. But also, guys, this absolute daily dependency on God produced, as you can imagine, a close, personal, intimate bond of love with the Lord. They were so in communion with him, so dependent on him, and they saw him working every day to supply their needs, kind of like the children of Israel in the wilderness as the manna came down every day, and God supplied water from the rock and all. That was a daily dependence that, that caused them to become close to God. And um, these folks just fell in love with the Lord, all right? And um, guess what? Because they were poor, 
They had no distractions. They weren't clinging to any material prosperity or possessions. They didn't have any. When you're poor, life isn't so great as compared to some, like the rich, of course. But what it does is it keeps you free from the entanglements of the world. You really are looking to heaven. You, you really are looking to the kingdom of God. That's where your heart is at. You, you don't have all these distractions, right, that others have. So your heart, that's why Christians in third world countries, they have it hard. But boy, do they love the Lord. And boy, are they looking for the kingdom of God to come. It's amazing. I remember years ago, one of our Calvary pastors, Pastor Mike McIntosh, was speaking at a pastor's conference that I was at. And Mike traveled all over the world. He was a pastor in San Diego, but he also traveled all over the world ministering and doing missions, outreaches, and things. And he was saying that he was in a country somewhere, I forgot where it was, very poor country though. And he was staying with a family, Christian family, and uh, they had, uh, you know, they had sat down to eat a meal, a very simple meal, of course. And during the course of several, you know, maybe a dozen or so people, and during the course of this meal, one of them, uh, looked over and said, uh, Pastor Mike, we really feel sorry for the Christians in America. And Mike said, I was taken back by that. <laughs> okay. And Mike says, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, we don't have money to buy a TV. Therefore, we don't worry about that. And we just spend our time fellowshipping with each other and reading and studying the Word of God and praying. We don't have that distraction. He said, none of us can afford a car. And even if we did get a car, gas is so expensive, we just can't afford it. So we, you know, walk where we have to go and gives us time with the Lord. And we don't, he said, we don't, we don't have all the distractions that Christians have in America, things that take their time away from the Lord. And as he was talking to Mike, initially Mike couldn't understand where this person was coming from, but it dawned on him, this person is absolutely right. I mean, we think we're the blessed Christian nation. When Mike says, I came to believe that, you know what? These Christians in these third world countries, maybe they were the most blessed because they, they had to rely on God for everything. And it, they drew very close to him. Uh, James 2, verse 6, But, and the idea is when you show favoritism to the rich, you have dishonored the poor man. As you show favoritism to the rich and yet tell the poor guy to go stand in the corner at your services. Uh, he says, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the, into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Look, James reminds his readers that you know, much of, of the persecution they were experiencing in their lives was at the hands of the rich. You say, well, why was that? Well, it was because the rich are often motivated by the love of money, by the love of money, which as Paul said in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, money is not evil. It's the love of money. There's a lot of wealthy people who don't love their money and use it for God's glory, and a lot of poor people that love it who don't have it. It's just it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And, uh, you know, the, the wealthy, you know, they have the money to hire lawyers, to take the poor to court, to take advantage of them, maybe to take from them something uh, that belongs to them, but they can't really don't have the money to defend themselves in a court of law, so they get a judgment against them all the time. I'm thinking of, uh, uh, and I was just reading an article 
just the other day, these eminent domain laws, uh, how that, you know, wealthy people will take poor people to court to use these laws to take land from them to use to build uh, luxury home tracks on or hotels, that kind of thing. This one family, I forgot where it was here in the States, their father had purchased, uh, it was really a, a little island, and uh, they had owned it for generations, and, um, and uh, eventually they wanted to build a retirement home on it. But the uh, county came in and said, uh, no, we, uh, we designate that as a bird sanctuary. And so they couldn't, not only couldn't build their retirement, you can camp on it once in a while, but you still have to pay the taxes on it, okay? And I mean, I've heard story after story about municipalities. Uh, somebody rich comes in, buys off a couple of uh, politicians, and all of a sudden now they use eminent domain to condemn their land, take it from them. Next thing you know, the developers are developing it and making a fortune off of it. You know, this is what James is talking about. I mean, you know, that uh, the wealthy will often oppress you. And that's often the ones that do oppress. Now, if the rich that James is referring to here were professing Christians, then by oppressing the poor and then coming to church to, you know, praise the Lord, they were in effect blaspheming the noble name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the process but once again, guys, these people that James has in mind could be counterfeit Christians. Religious phonies like the scribes and Pharisees. You know, those that Jesus condemned for doing basically the very same thing. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 23, verse 14, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. What is he talking about? This is a practice among the Pharisees who are often very wealthy. And they would use their money to uh, either foreclose if somebody fell a little bit behind on something. They would use their money to, to foreclose on their property, throw them out of their houses, widows. And then they would go stand on the street corners and make long prayers as if they were so pious and holy. And Jesus said, you know what? You guys will receive the greater judgment on the day of judgment because you claim to represent God, but you are showing no mercy no compassion. You're throwing a widow out of her house because she falls a little bit behind in the rent or the mortgage that you own. The you know you own. James goes on with this thought. He says in verse eight, "If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well." Now, once again, guys, the royal law is basically the law of the king and his kingdom. It's a law that really governs how the king's kids are to live our lives under the new covenant. For example, and we've talked about this, so bear with me if you've heard me say this before, but you know, in the Decalogue, also known as the Ten Commandments, the Eighth Commandment that God gave was, you shall not steal. And we said the law could force me not to steal what belonged to you, but it couldn't force me to share with you what belongs to me. The royal law, as James describes, it does both. If I have the love of God in my heart... I am not going to want to steal from you what is yours, and I will want to share with you, if you need it, what belongs to me. As Christians, we are not under the law of Moses, of course. We are under, though, a greater law, the law of love, which, again, James calls the royal law. This law, this royal law, was first expressed, actually, in Leviticus 19, verse 18, where the Lord said to his people, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
In fact, you remember in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, one of the lawyers came, a Pharisee, one of the doctors of the law came to Jesus. Because this was a running debate uh, that many of the Pharisees had, and scribes and all. <laughs> Which commandment of the 613 that God gave, uh, the law of Moses, which commandment was the greatest? And so we read in Matthew, in fact, you can turn there, Matthew 22. Matthew 22, starting with verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, see, they were coming like in a tag team, okay? The Sadducees would come to try to trip him up. It's the last week of his life before the cross. They were trying to find something they could accuse him with. Every time they came with a trick question designed to trap him, he always gave them this incredibly brilliant answer, and they slinked away with their tail between their legs. Okay, now here comes the Pharisees, right? When, he, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him, got to watch out for them lawyers, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, and the Greek is the supreme, the supreme uh, and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus took 613 commandments and reduced them down to two. The greatest commandment is you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those two, you won't have to worry about any, any others. They'll take care of themselves, right? Paul, in fact, Paul the Apostle did the same thing in Romans 13, if you turn there. Listen to what Paul said, Romans 13, starting with verse 8. He said, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Wow. God actually considers love something we owe each other. Well, what do you mean? How, how does that work? Do you owe God anything? Do you owe God your salvation? For your salvation? Is he asking you to pay him back? No, you can't. We can't ever do that. What he is saying is, look, if you love me and you are thankful for what I've done for you, then love each other. Love each other. So, you know, owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And of course, he was quoting from the second table of the Decalogue, which deals with our relationships with our fellow man. He's saying, if you want to keep all those laws that, you know, that deal with your relationship to other people, just love your neighbors yourself. And if you do that, you'll be covered. Guys, the royal law forbids me and you from mistreating or taking advantage of another since, listen, I am to love them as I love myself and treat them the way I would want them to treat me. Now that comes out of Matthew 7, verse 12 what Jesus called the golden rule, or what we call the golden rule, okay? So those ideas, okay? Love your neighbor as, you, as yourself. Treat others the way you would want them to treat you. If you do those things, you're, you're going to be good in God's eyes with the way you treat other people. Verse 9, James 2, verse 9. But if you show partiality, you commit sin 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I can hear some people say, saying to James, yes, but I keep most of the rest of the law. All right, so I've broken a few commandments. I keep most of it. He goes on, verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, <laughs> just break one of the commandments, he is guilty of all, guilty of breaking the whole law. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now as I said, in the Old Testament, God's law contains 613 commandments. To break any one of them was to be a lawbreaker, and therefore guilty before God and condemned. But you know what? 613 commandments, that's a lot. Let's just deal with the 10 we know best, those called the 10 commandments, all right? Guys, these commandments, we've talked about this. Imagine that you have yourself a nice uh, rowboat, and you want to row from one side of the lake to the other. This rowboat happens to be made out of wood planks. There's 10 of them. If one of those planks is broken or missing, it doesn't matter that the other nine are intact. You're going under, right? You're going under. And James says the same is true with the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Even if you did keep nine of them perfectly your entire life, but simply broke one of them, that one commandment that you violated, that you broke, is going to, listen, sink you. It's going to condemn you. As James said in verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, in one point is guilty of breaking the whole law. And that's why, guys, Paul calls the law a curse. It's because it makes salvation dependent upon a person keeping all of it without fail. Now, you can imagine. See, there's a lot of people that don't realize what is involved in keeping the law of God. A lot of people think they can be good people and get to heaven, um, even though they're not perfect. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, okay? Uh, they don't realize that what God is demanding from them is absolute perfection to get into heaven. They, they don't understand that, okay? Uh, they don't realize the law demands moral perfection if a person is going to have access to heaven. And yet when we go out talking to people on the streets, you know, and asking them, well, if you were to die tonight and you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Well, I, I'll just tell him I'm a good person and he'd let me in. Well, why do you think you're a good person? Well, because I, you know, I, I'm not perfect, morally speaking, but I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. And when you really read what James says and other places, you realize that God is saying to us, if you're not morally perfect, you're not good enough to get into heaven. And that's why Jesus told the rich young ruler, who was a very moral person, by the way, no one is good but God, because, listen, God defines good as moral perfection. No one is good but God, he told this young guy. I mean, fallen man defines goodness as simply being better than others. And since we can always find someone worse than we are to compare ourselves to, most people think they're good people. But again, they aren't the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard, and he is perfect. Which means there is... You know, there's no I think I'm good enough or I'm better than him or her argument to get into heaven. Again, it's either sinless perfection or eternal rejection. Hell, even as Paul said in Romans 3, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin means to miss the mark. What's the mark? Sinless perfection. All have missed the mark. All have, you know, 
Everyone has fallen short of sinless perfection. He goes on to say, and the wages of sin is death. Everybody who has ever been born into this world, not perfect, of course, some are better than others, but if you haven't lived a morally perfect life, you're not good enough to get to heaven. That's what God wants us to understand. Of course, when we realize that, we ask God, well, Lord, is there any other way? Because I'm not perfect. Is there any other way for me to get into heaven? And yes, God says, yes, my son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's a gift. You can't earn it, but if you receive my son, I'll give it to you as a free gift. Now, I hear people at this point shouting back, you know, no one can live a sinless life. No one can live a life of sinless perfection. And of course, we know that wasn't true. Jesus did. He lived the perfect life. And uh, the Bible says if we put our faith in him, our sins are put on his, on him, and in return he gives us his sinless perfection. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 4. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul says, For he made him, God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect, sinless. To be, and I'm going to paraphrase, not to turn into sin. Christians read that and they come away with a very faulty theology. When it says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It doesn't mean he made Jesus turn into sin. Jesus is God. God cannot become sin. But what Jesus became was the sinless offering for our sins. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Romans 4, verse 5, Paul said, But to him who does not work, in other words, religious duties and ceremonies and religious works, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So, important that we understand that, and I know most of you do, but uh, we're here and... uh, James is talking about this, and we want to just touch on it. But back to James chapter 2, verse 12. He said, So speak and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, a lot of Christians read this, and they get very confused and very concerned. Because... It seems as though James is teaching that if you don't speak in a right way or live in a right way, you're going to be judged and sent to hell. I mean, and there are churches that believe in um, holiness doctrines, which they define as you have to live a certain kind of life, and they have their list of what you can do and what you can't do. Because if you don't live a certain holy life, well, you will forfeit your salvation and you could go to hell if you don't repent and get saved again. Some of these churches, people are getting saved every week. Because who? (laughs) Nobody can live that kind of a life. And you should see some of these lists, all right? They get pretty extensive and pretty nitpicky. So every week, people are coming to get saved all over again, which I just, I don't believe. I don't believe that's the way it works. What I believe is going on here is, and and I'll just kind of paraphrase where where I believe James is coming from, what he's thinking. When he talks about, you know, 
so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, he is saying mercy is an attribute of God's character. Uh, Exodus 34, verse 6. And can only, listen, be consistently demonstrated by those who have God's Spirit living within them. These, of course, would be true Christians who are born of the Spirit and as such have God's mercy produced through them as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Look, nobody can produce the fruit of the Spirit who is not a Christian because the fruit of the Spirit comes as God plants His nature within us when we're saved. We become partakers of the divine nature. And as such, the Spirit of God moves inside and now He begins to produce from our new heart certain attributes that are consistent with God's nature and they come forth from our lives in the form of the fruit of the Spirit. These are a testimony to the reality that saving faith and, of course, God's nature is in our hearts. This is what pokes its way up out of our lives that proves that we know God, the fruit of the Spirit, right? And I believe what James is saying is, when he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, listen, this is a reference in my mind to those who claim to be Christians, but who will show favoritism to the rich and disrespect the poor, those who are religious and believe they know God but have no compassion for widows and orphans and they partake constantly in the various filthy garbage of the world around them. Uh, furthermore, these are those who think that keeping the law of Moses is going to get them into heaven, even though they don't really keep it perfectly by any means. They break laws all the time, but because they feel they keep most of them, in their minds that's going to get them into heaven. And finally, these are those who drag people into court and hold them accountable for everything they owe them or they do to them without showing any mercy, which is the character of God now, without showing them any mercy whatsoever. In other words, guys, James, I believe, has got unbelievers in mind who profess to know God, but in works they deny him. To these, God will show no mercy on the day of judgment, because guess what? They did not know God, as evidenced in the fact they did not have coming forth from their life the character of God, the attributes, the fruit of the Spirit. That doesn't mean that we Christians can't withhold mercy at times, that we can't be vindictive. It just means that the pattern of our lives is that the fruit of the Spirit is coming forth on a regular basis. Sure, we're going to be selfish at times. Sure, we're not going to show God's love in certain situations as we should. But overall, overall, we are going to be manifesting the character of Christ because that is the new nature that lives inside of us, the nature of God. And that's why James ends verse 13 with the statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. It is his way of saying that someone who shows consistent mercy to others demonstrates that the Spirit of God lives in their hearts. In other words, they're born again. And therefore, they have passed from death to life and will never come into condemnation, will never go to hell. Of course, Jesus said that in John 5, verse 24. Again, the issue is, what kind of fruit is coming forth from their life? Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. We will know God's people by the fruit that comes out of their life. Again, the fruit of the Spirit. And mercy is an attribute of God. And if a person is showing mercy, and guess what? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. 
So a lot of people who are Christians who have shown great mercy. I remember a few years ago, an armed man went onto a uh, Amish area of their uh, where they lived, and there was a, a school where they were Amish kids were going and they were uh, in class that day. And he goes in and he killed I don't know how many of these kids. Brutal. Just took all these kids out. And a few days later, they were interviewing some of the Amish in the community. And, and they basically said, well, we're, we're heartbroken, but we forgive him. We forgive him because that's what we're supposed to do. As Christians, we forgive. That's, that's who we are. That's showing mercy. You know, I think most people would have said, I want this guy hung from the highest, you know, if I could beat him to death, I would. But we have a different spirit within us. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. He's talking about those people who manifest mercy because they are born of the Spirit, and they are the ones that are going to be shown mercy in the day of judgment because they know God. They know God. And then, of course, later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gave a parable to drive this truth home in a very powerful way. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. You're all familiar with this story, this parable, but it really dovetails with what I believe James is saying. In Matthew 18, starting with verse 21, and again I'll read it to you out of the NLT. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. 490 times, that's a lot of times, Lord. I'm not sure I can count up that high without forgetting. That's the idea. <laughs> when you're a believer, forgiveness is not a matter of mathematics. It's a matter of God has forgiven me. I must forgive others. Jesus replied, Therefore, uh, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him a million dollars, the NLT says. Well, actually, it's a hundred, uh, it's 10,000 talents. A talent weighed about 100 pounds. Usually they were gold. So by today's standards, this guy owed this king over $21 billion. That's a big debt for a working guy. Verse 25, he couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and his children and everything he owned to pay the debt. Now, that wasn't going to make a dent in the debt, but what else could the king do, right? But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Right. Then his master was filled with pity for him. He had mercy. And he released him and forgave his debt. Can you imagine that? All right, $21 billion, forget it. Wow. This guy you think would have been like crazy happy, right? Verse 27, then his master was filled with pity and forgave him. Verse 28, but when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. Okay, well, that's the amount that was listed. is about 9000 in our economy today. It, and some people, and I've, I've heard them teach this, you know, it's like um, the one guy owed the king 20 million and the other guy owed, you know, this fellow servant owed 20 bucks. Well, 
well, that doesn't really impact us. 20 bucks, who cares? Forget it, right? $9,000, man, that's a bit, of, a bit of money for a working guy. And I believe what the Lord was saying is this, that there are those who hurt us, that owe us. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about, you know, they owe us uh, because of something. They've, you know, they, they've hurt us in some way. Or they owe us quite a bit that way, or even maybe it is money. And to forgive them would hurt us in a sense. I mean, you know, to say to somebody who owed you nine grand, forget about it. But in the light of what God forgave us, that's nothing, right? So this guy owed him nine grand. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little, for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay you, he pleaded. But his creditor would, wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man uh, he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. And Jesus says, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. And once again, guys, we read this and become very uncomfortable. In fact, you know, depending on how unforgiving you are as a person, panicked that if I don't forgive somebody who has wronged me, I'm going to hell. I'm not going to tell you that's maybe not what the Lord is saying. I'm not going to try to lessen the severity of this. But again, I really feel that Jesus was saying through this parable what James is saying, that mercy is a quality of God's character that either you have it in your heart or you don't. If you have mercy in your heart because the Spirit of God is in you, it's going to manifest. You are not going to take what God has done for you in forgiving you the tremendous debt you owe to him and then be petty against somebody who owes you so much less and demand that they, you know, pay you, you know, no matter what it takes. To me, what the point that the Lord is making is that is an evidence that the person was never forgiven by the king because he never even, he, he didn't know the king, didn't know him. And I know that that presents some problems, but... Take it for what you will. I just think that it's important that we manifest the heart of God, the character of God. And, you know, the fruits of the Spirit are the only way we know that we really are children of God. And if we manifest those things and they grow out of our lives, we can be sure that we have God's Spirit within us. We are children of the King. So James is going to continue this idea now, guys, because, he's, again, he's talking to those who are religious but don't really have a relationship with the Lord. They think they do. And so now he's going to talk about true faith and false faith. The kind of faith that saves and the kind of faith that deceives because it's not real faith at all. And this is where a lot of people have trouble with James. As we said, Martin Luther, we'll talk about, had a big problem with this coming section in James' epistle. So hang on to that thought and we will... Take it on next time, God willing. 
Uh, Father, we thank you for your word and how that you, uh, Lord, open to our understanding these things through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, the bottom line is you want us to be real. You don't want us to be phony. You want us to be genuinely close to you, saved, committed to you. And Lord, you want to live your life through us. You want us to glorify you by the fruit of the Spirit that grows from our lives, which will be choked out if we walk in selfishness and carnality. Give us grace, Lord, to walk in humility, surrender, that you might live your life through us, that the world might see that we belong to you, that others would get saved by our light and example. And we ask you, Lord, just to keep blessing these uh, studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.